The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory Glory to to you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. morning. It's good to see you this morning on Labor Day weekend. Let's start praying together. Father, we, we admit that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. And so I pray, give us ears to hear it. Give us eyes that can see it. And more than anything, give us hearts that want to follow you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, when it comes to Jesus, there's many long-standing debates over what I would consider to be some matters of pretty great significance. Uh, One, over his nature. Is he human? Is he divine? Is he some kind of mixture of both? Pretty important question. And others, over his origin. Is he from heaven? Is he from earth? And that, with it, his birth? Was it a miraculous conception or was it a natural thing? These are really big questions that if you answer them have a lot of implications. Are they fact? Are they fiction? What is fact? What is fiction? And actually one of those long-standing debates is over something that seems not quite as important and it's his job. What did Jesus actually do for his profession? How did he make a paycheck while he lived on earth? We think of him as a carpenter. Joseph is mentioned as a carpenter. He's a carpenter's son. It's very likely that he carried on the trade that his family was already doing. But there's another option. And it's actually that of a stonemason. That he wasn't actually working with wood. He was working with stone. Because the region that Jesus grew up in, uh, it's easy to conclude that geographically there was a lot more stone. It was a lot more plentiful. And most of the things constructed were made from Stone, not wood. Okay, and then of course there's a biblical argument. Everything comes down to a biblical argument. And that's this. That the word that we translate as carpenter is actually the Greek word tekton, which is what we get our word tectonics from. And if you're familiar with that at all, you know that means down in the earth. A study of things in the crust of the earth, the plates that we often hear are shifting back and forth, which definitely means stone has to be the right answer. Who cares? Does it really matter what Jesus did for his job? Except to say this, that that Jesus by trade would have been familiar with the process and the materials involved in building something and what works and what simply won't work. He was a craftsman builder by trade. 
And so it's no wonder then, if you look at our passage, you would see he concludes his Sermon on the Mount with a parable in the area of his expertise. He talks about building. He, he knows what it is to build. He knows what it takes to build. And he also knows how relatable it is to life because everyone is building a life for themselves. Everyone is listening to something. Everyone is standing on something. Everyone is living for something. Every single one of us has an ethos, a way of living, and we have a telos for our lives too, a reason that we are living. It's inescapably human, inescapably human to live by something and to live for something, no matter how committed you might be to being completely uncommitted. It's inescapably human. So we close our summer sermon series on the parables with Jesus's closing parable. And and what we'll see is this. There's two builders and both build and both face adversity and hardship. But one builder is described as wise and the other is a fool. And we learn from the end of the parable that whatever it is that differentiates the two is of the utmost importance. It's no small thing. It's presented as a matter of life or death, of ruin or resilience, of destruction or endurance. So what sets the wise builder apart from the foolish one? Three things. First, survey. Second, excavation. Third, foundation. So first, survey. If you look back at the passage, the first two verses serve as a, a prelude to the parable. And in it, there's, there's a rather direct and indicting question, one that I think might be off-putting for some of us at first glance. But if you look closely, you'll find yourself agreeing and sharing the sentiment of the question. And it's this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? This, this tells us something really important. Uh, Jesus is not talking to a group of rebellious sinners or atheists or skeptics or cynics. He's talking to people who have a profession of faith. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but whose lives don't match their profession? We call these people hypocrites. Two-faced people. Those who offer Jesus attention and even title, but not their lives. Their faith is not a lived faith. It's just a professed faith. And they're way too casual with Jesus and his words. They, They dance around and discuss Jesus, but they just seem to be refusing to actually follow him. It's almost like a form of spiritual flirtation. Have you ever known a flirt? Have you ever been a flirt? Uh, I read an interesting article earlier this year entitled, Forget Love Apps, Gen Z Wants to Date Like Cats. And the summary of the article is that Generation Z embraces singleness with greater enthusiasm than any generation before it. That 48% of those who were polled said being single is the most fulfilling way of life. And the article goes on to compare the commitment level of generations to different animals. See if you can locate yourself here. Baby boomers to penguins. Longing to find commitment from a lifelong partner. Uh, Millennials were compared to canines. Uh, They began dating with the rise of the dating apps and 
a desire was grown to have relationships with multiple partners, not just one. Okay, and then there's Generation Z, the ones they say are more like cats. I don't like cats. Allowing partners to come and to go with an air of indifference. That's exactly why I don't like cats. They only give you attention when you're giving attention to them. Like a flirt. A spiritual flirt does this. Shows intrigue, interest, spurts of desire, but at the end of the day refuses a life commitment to Jesus. Lots of talk, little action. And and those who are like this tend to be unaware of it or they're even lost in it as a way of life. And what they need to do is to survey the landscape of their life and not just fall back on their profession. Sincere faith is not less than, but it is more than a mere profession of words about your faith. Hearing Jesus is intended to produce obedience to him and his way of life. And there is a biblical argument for this. Throughout scripture, when you see the word obey, the Hebrew word behind it is Shema. But in Hebrew, Shema is actually to hear. And so there's this interchange and this interplay between the word hear and obey, as if what you hear is what, of course, you're going to obey. And what you obey, of course, that means that you can spiritually hear. They're not juxtaposed or even differentiated from each other. They seem to be almost one in the same thing, that a true faith is a lived and lively faith, but a hypocrite's faith is like a scarecrow. It fakes power and it fakes life. But if you get up close enough to it, you see that all of its power lies in its deception. It's not really alive. It can't shoo the crows away. It's just a straw man in your front yard. That's what a faith is like. It is a profession and yet not really fully alive. So what Jesus is trying to tell us is he's not going to flirt with images. He's not going to flirt with projections. He won't be flirted with. And his question is a call to survey the reality of our lives and to ask who or what are you really living for? And then after surveying, we see that the, the wise builder, he begins to excavate. He begins to, what the scripture says, dig deep. Look at it again. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep. Okay, th- this is the first and clear distinction given between the wise and the foolish builder. The wise builder is not afraid to do the hard work of digging down deep which most of us try to avoid at all costs because it is hard work. It's hard work to dig down deep, to get to the level of motivation and even below that to the level of insecurities. But if you're a builder, that's exactly why you dig down deep. You want to get to the level of insecurities because if you don't, you will build your entire life upon them. That was the case with Will Hunting. Have you seen the movie Good Will Hunting? I remember the first time I watched the movie, I thought, 
man, there is so much language in this thing. Why does every movie set in Boston have so much language? And then I went to Boston and I realized it's not just the movie. It's Boston. The movie is actually a journey into the life of Will Hunting. He's played by Matt Damon. He's a, he's a self-taught genius, incredibly intelligent, and he works as a janitor at MIT. It's the perfect picture of his life, a purposeful underachiever. He spends his free time voraciously reading, sometimes partying, but he's never applying himself. He's just wasting his brilliant mind away. And throughout the movie, you begin to see that his intelligence actually is a defense mechanism. It's a mask he wears. It's a way that he keeps others away from him. And that's because he's an orphan. And as a foster child, he was abused. So he's had a really hard life. And he refuses to make himself vulnerable to anyone else again. So one night he gets arrested for attacking an officer after a bar fight. And in order to avoid jail time, his punishment is that he has to attend therapy sessions, which he hates. And he goes to therapists and then gets fired by them because he outsmarts them and annoys them and even angers them. And after outsmarting a few therapists, Will finally meets his match. He meets Dr. Sean McGuire, who's played by Robin Williams. And Will tries to outsmart him, but he can't. So he mocks him. He personally attacks him. He even makes fun of his deceased wife who had died from cancer. Everything in his power to try to get out of there. But Dr. McGuire won't take the bait. He begins to expose Will's insecurities. And in one of my favorite scenes from the movie, this is what Dr. McGuire says to Will. If I asked you about art, you could probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo? You know a lot about him, his life's work, his political aspirations, about him and the Pope, his sexual orientation, the whole works, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling because you've never left Boston. If I ask you about women, you'll probably give me a syllabus of all your personal favorites. I bet you have lots of experience there, don't you? But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. If I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet because you know all of them. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. You've never known someone that could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you who could rescue you from the depths of hell. I mean, you're an orphan, right? Do you think I know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how you feel, because I read Oliver Twist? Does that encapsulate you? Tell me everything about who you are. And then he says this. I can't learn anything about you unless you want to talk about you. Who you really are. But you don't want to do that because you're terrified of what you might have to say to me. It's your move, chief silence. Under the surface is where real life could begin. The wise builder knows that. He's willing to excavate. He's willing to dig deep to find out what he's standing on, but also perhaps to find out what he's running from. 
And most of us live out our insecurities because we're unwilling to face them. We build our lives upon the very thing that we wish would just go away. Like an orphan who will do whatever it takes in life to avoid abandonment again. Or like the child who's caught in a nasty divorce who later on can't seem to commit to work or to friends or certainly to a spouse because commitment feels like impending danger and destruction. Or like a man that I counseled recently who confessed to me, I worked and worked and worked my whole life to give my kids the life that I never had. And now... I don't really know them, and they barely know me. He built his life on his insecurity. And the invitation, the wise builder excavates those. Unexcavated insecurities will lead your life to being built upon them. But Jesus is even in some ways warning us into a different way of life. And he's been doing it throughout this entire sermon. If you go to the beginning, he presented a different way of life. And it's built from the bottom up. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. What an upside down way of describing what blessing is. But his whole point is that the person who's willing to be undone is the person who can be built up. The one who is willing to dig deep through the false floors laid in life is the one who then can lay a more solid foundation. And that's what the wise builder does after he excavates. He lays a foundation on the rock. That's the final distinction that's given between the wise and the foolish builder, that the wise builder laid a foundation on the rock. And when the floods of life break against him, he cannot be moved or shaken. Now, I I don't know about you, but what I want here is for Jesus to give us an apologetic. I want him to give a defense. I want him to give an explanation for why his way is better than all the other possibilities, the other philosophies, the other world religions, the other worldviews. Why is his way the best way to provide a proof? But that's not what he does. He, he invokes imagery. And it's, it's imagery that his listeners would have been familiar with where where the rock is not just a material, it seems to be a person. The concept of God as a rock for his people is a very prevalent theme in the Old Testament. There's examples in their history. You see it in the wilderness narrative with Moses and Israel were not once but twice. God provides water from a rock when the people cry out from thirst. It's signifying that God satisfies his thirsty people. This reality was echoed in our Old Testament reading. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, incline your ear and come to me. And then the poets carry this concept on from the historians. Over 30 times, the psalmist portray God as a rock for his people, and it describes him this way, as a, as a firm foundation for their lives, as a source of refuge from trouble, as a security and a strength, as a hiding place from their enemies. And then a home is built for them in Jerusalem. And the temple built there is a house for God. And then it's completely destroyed. Every single rock is overturned. And it's overturned by their enemies. 
and the people of God are defeated, they're exiled, and instead of a firm foundation, like it says here, or a refuge from trouble, or a hiding place, or a source of security, God appears to be no greater a foundation than any other God or power surrounding them in the earth. He's not a rock. And then they're exiled. And you know what happens there? They begin to dig. Literally at the orders of their captors, but figuratively into their hearts and their lives. They cry out from a deep place of need, a deep place of insecurity, a deep place of anger. And they need a solid foundation. And you know what happens then? God speaks directly to them. He does it through the mouths of the prophets. This is what he says. Listen, I will lay a stone for you in Jerusalem, a tested rock, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic or fear. That's where Jesus is drawing this parable from. Jesus is not just presenting a way of life. He's presenting his very self. That that what you need most is to be built upon him. He is both builder and foundation. And through his death, we know he was building something. It's what our epistle tells us. It calls it the house of God. That he laid down his very own life as the foundation. And even more than that, more specifically, is the precious cornerstone the rock upon which all other rocks were to be built. Satisfying, solid, secure, enduring, an unshakable life. And look, he doesn't ask you to lay your life as the foundation. He's already laid his as the foundation for you. He asks you to dig deep and to build up on him. He's the rock. And if you do... You'll find your life instead of some kind of death. You'll find resilience instead of some kind of ruin. You'll find security instead of destruction. You won't be spared from the storms of life, but you won't be crushed by them either. So back to the beginning. Carpenter or stonemason? Wood or stone? Builder or the foundation itself? And the historians and the poets and the prophets and the apostles resoundingly say it's both. He is both builder and foundation. And a life well built must build itself upon the rock who is Jesus Christ. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, I pray this morning that we would come to you as living stones with our lives built on Jesus Christ. And if we are completely wrapped up in insecurities and weaknesses and faults, if we're living with false floors, then I do pray that you would take them out from underneath us, that we might dig deep and find you. Help us to embrace by faith the solid life that you intend for us to have and to live. I pray. In Christ's name, amen.